Ever had the feeling you're destined to do something big, but you weren't sure what, because maybe it has never existed yet? You are in the right place. This is the Pagan Monastery Podcast, and I'm your host, Danica Boyce. We know by now what we don't want, so let's start building the traditions, the rituals, and the sacred places that we do want. I believe that with clarity of purpose and love, we can do absolutely anything together. On this podcast, you'll find heaps of inspiration for touching into your innately abundant nature while you follow and help create the unfolding story of how, together, we established the first pagan monastery in Europe. It's coming. We deserve it. So let's get building. Welcome to the Pagan Monastery Podcast. I'm Danica, and it's lovely to be back here with you after a pause of a couple of months. You'll find, if you follow me on social media or on podcasts, that I don't always produce content on a regular schedule because I like to wait until I have something to say that I feel is necessary and very sincere. And that's not to say that other people who post weekly don't. That's just how I roll and how this project is going. It will have moments of underground activity, of root growth, And when there are flowers and leaves, I'll be here to report them to you. So today I am here to offer a couple of updates and some insights that I've gained in the last couple of months and particularly the last couple of weeks when I've been traveling around Iceland with my father and my partner, Quinn. When you hear this episode, it's very likely that I will be in Canada, assuming our flight goes as scheduled, eventually my partner and I will be returning to Ontario, Canada and spending about a month there and then we'll be deciding what to do next because we have lived in Iceland for the past year, roughly, and we have decided that we don't plan to stay here forever. (laughs) And we don't know yet where we'll be going exactly. We're going to return to Canada to visit some family and decide if we'd like to spend more time there or if we'd like to return to Europe. It's all very open. And that's one of the reasons that I haven't shared very much recently is because we're in this rather extended period of decision-making and uncertainty, which I'm sure anywhere that you are listening in the world, you can identify with on some level. It's very much reflected in the larger occurrence of culture and politics and movement and migration. We're not alone in this experience of not being certain what the future is. And that's what I want to talk a lot about today in the frame of my recent experiences. I want to see if I can offer some encouragement and some communal feeling around this sense of liminality that many of us are in in the moment. So the Pagan Monastery Project, I've been working with a small group privately on some future events, (laughs) a funding initiative that will take place in the future. And I don't have any details that are ready to share with you, but I've been underground, digging, planting, watering, etc. over the last few months very intentionally and very thoroughly and making sure that what I am going to share with you is going to be something that 
makes sense and that you can take a hold of and participate in. I really desire the Pagan Monastery Project to be community-based and community-oriented and to have as much genuine opportunity embedded into the way that it's built for real participation and for real benefit to everybody involved. And so you haven't seen me posting as much if you follow me on social media in the last couple of months either because of this partly because of this internal work where I'm doing things behind the scenes. I'm also working on the first chapter of the book that I'm writing about my particular approach to paganism that is shared with many other people, but I personally call abundance paganism. And a couple of times in that process, I've circled back to restarting writing this chapter because I realized that as the first chapter to a book, it's very important (laughs) that you have a pretty clear outline of how that book is going to go right until the end, what exactly that book offers to people. And so I've wanted to make sure that I get it right. And at times that's been a bit frustrating because it would be nice if I could release the first chapter of this book and I could get the book membership program that I'm planning started as soon as possible. But I also want to make sure that I'm doing it right and in integrity with what I want to share with people and what will serve people best. So there's been some lapse in time between the first time I would have mentioned that on social media or on this podcast. But in the meantime, I've actually been reading a really wonderful book. If you're someone who's interested in writing nonfiction that has more of a personal development focus, there's an amazing book called Write a Must Read by A.J. Harper, and A.J. Harper has a name like a macho man writing about bro-y business, but A.J. Harper is actually a queer woman writing from the perspective of having been a ghostwriter for many personal development authors over at least a decade, and seeing how the book industry has this tendency to, as she puts it, weaponize hope, that people often or at least one of the sort of problems that she sees in book publishing is this false representation of how a book works in the world. People will overemphasize Amazon reviews or New York Times bestseller list spots, which she lets people know can be bought, <laughs> apparently, at the expense of actually asking yourself when you're writing a book, how does this serve people? What are the greatest needs of the people that I want to give this gift to, that I want to help with what I have, with the insight that is unique to me? And actually getting curious about that and directly asking people, what do you most need in this field that I can serve in? And so that's what I've also been doing. I pulled several of my Instagram followers and emailing list and asked them, what is your biggest spiritual need? And What's in the way of you meeting that? And one of the greatest and strongest and most passionate responses that I got among so many that repeatedly made me weep, I was so touched by how open people were and how willing they were to share with me their deepest vulnerability. And that deepest vulnerability is so relatable to me. And I think probably to everyone who's listening to this, very likely, the need is to connect, connect more with the land, with where we are, with a sense of spiritual presence, with a real tangible belief that 
divinity is around us and does support us and does wish to interact with us. And secondary to that, or as a part of that, is the need to connect with humans in person, with real pagan community, with people who see us as who we really are, not just what role we serve in the community or what we've been performing in order to fit in on the most basic level. We want to be seen much more deeply than that by our peers and in person, in place, not just online or by reading the same books. So I was just totally floored by these responses and I've been working from them as the ethic, the core, the central seed that is this book. And it's no surprise, this is the matter that I've been working with for many years now, and I feel very confident that I can offer what's in my power and in my wheelhouse in that field. So back to social media. So I will be announcing sometime soon, let's just say sometime, I won't make any promises, about becoming a part of that book club, how you can receive the chapters as I'm writing them. But for the moment, I'm actually moving, as I said, away from Iceland. So there's a, a slight delay in any really practical work, productive stuff going on. And that's all as it should be. I'm in very much a liminal space. So back to social media. I haven't been posting as much on Instagram because I've been really feeling ambivalent about it. The first sense that I had was just that I didn't want to. And then I started learning also in the last few months more about Web3 and how, in contrast to the way that some people are imagining the future of the internet, what's called Web3, you can find information about this online, but I've just been noticing as I'm learning more about how the internet is designed that the platform I've been using... Instagram, is very much designed to exploit community, to exploit our desire for connection, and to redirect the energy that we pour into it because we need it so deeply and it's so valuable to exploit that and redirect that energy to the profit of a very few and definitely at the expense of the communities that we are attempting to build online. So, as much as Instagram has been a helpful tool for me to share information at times, it's also a very unreliable one and one that doesn't always feel worthy of my effort. Because I know that when I make a podcast episode and I can speak directly to you, none of the energy is lost in that exchange. And you can always email me right back at paganmonastery at gmail.com. And if you're not on my email list, I'm going to put the link in the show notes so that you can always hear from me if you want to. We can have the good old-fashioned, almost snail mail level <laughs> interaction of an email, but you can be pretty certain you will actually receive. There's no algorithms involved. I'm just feeling a lot more strongly the ethical and value-based imperative of some healthy suspicion of the major social media giants that we're engaging with and not to think of them in like a super fear-based way. But as I begin to learn more about the alternatives, I'm starting to feel less beholden to them. I feel freer when I imagine, hey, what if I'm taking photos just for myself, not for 
some major corporation that may or may not show them to my friends. I've been feeling a lot more private about my personal life, not because I don't want to share it with you, but because I don't want to share it with the intermediaries between you and I. And I think that's a really healthy instinct. And when we have these feelings of, you know, the initial feeling that I had was, I just don't really want to do this and I don't know why. And my friend Britton LaRue, who's an astrologer, who I've worked with here and there in, in my work, she has this expression called the emergent no. She goes much more into it than I do here or I will, but you just get a feeling that you don't want something and you can't explain it and you don't know why and you might be very suspicious of it and you're worried that it might make people mad or cut off opportunities, but you just have a sense that something's a little off. That's how I've been feeling about social media. And I think I've mentioned that on the podcast before, but this emergent no for me is emerging and is in some ways, as I've been like working to reframe it, because initially it's just a sense of feeling disappointed and disempowered often when you feel like this isn't totally working for me. There can be some mourning in that process. And I'm not saying I'm not going to have Instagram any longer. I'm sure I'll keep Instagram, but I'm just shifting into a much more embodied and in-person and very direct means of communication as much as possible. I just want to share some of the hope that I'm feeling as I've been stepping away from focusing so much on feeding the social media content machine, even when I don't know what exactly is taking its place. Podcasts are always a fantastic alternative if you need a boost of encouragement in that direction. Things are moving People are working to build alternatives. Alternatives already exist and more are coming. People want to communicate with you. People want to see you and be seen by you. We will not fall under the heel of techno giants if we don't permit it. There's always a person out there who you can really feel and touch in the flesh and speak to and learn things from. And it's kind of cool even the sense that I get of Instagram, the fact that it's kind of boring now. <laughs> Does anyone else feel that? Is Instagram kind of worn out? Is that just me? To me, that's actually a refreshing feeling, you know, that it's not as quite as hypnotizing as maybe it once was. We're not quite as dependent on it as we were when we were all in lockdown. There's always movement happening. And on a totally different note, speaking of movement, my partner and I are going away from Iceland. We're not sure where we want to settle next for the winter and this next year as we're determining where we'd like the pagan monastery to be, which could be a multi-year process. Hard to say. We want to be living in community. We want to be living possibly in Europe if we can, or back in Canada in connection with really dynamic, excited, optimistic, ambitious people who love folklore. <laughs> we don't know where we're going yet, but one thing I wanted to address is that I've heard from a couple of people online recently asking me when I'm moving to Italy, and I'm not, as far as I know moving to Italy at the moment. I must have somehow phrased something strangely in my last episode, indicating that 
I really enjoyed Italy and it helped me realize that living in Iceland, it's a bit too cold and dark for this person who's kind of like a lizard, needs sunlight. But I'm not immediately planning to move to Italy, though invitations, you know, to hang out in your medieval hamlet are always welcome if that's where you are. I have taken that invitation in the past. But yes, not moving to Italy at the moment. I'm sorry if I caused any confusion to anybody. I'm not sure where I'm moving. And that's part of the fun. So as I mentioned, I just arrived back yesterday. Today is Monday, July 11th on Sunday. I arrived home from a two-week journey around the circumference of Iceland. And this is the second time I've taken this trip. It was super cool to recall the first time I'd taken the trip, which was in 2017. I was by myself and I was driving a manual car, something I've never done again since then. It was quite an ambitious undertaking because growing up in Canada, it's rare that you would know how to drive a manual car. And I didn't, but I did my best. It was the, also the beginning of this whole journey of researching folklore, making connections with people in northern Iceland to record folk singing there. I did a whole ethnomusicological project based on Tvisengur, which is a, a special Icelandic polyphonic singing technique. There's a Fair Folk podcast episode all about it, if you're curious about some of the connections I've made and the research I've done in Icelandic folk song in the past, that episode is called The Wailing of the Old Timers, and I'll link that in the show notes as well. But as I was traveling, I had a lot of time to contemplate the Icelandic landscape specifically and to reflect on how it makes me feel and how we think about it culturally as well. What does this green, volcanic, spiky, smooth, totally surreal ancient landscape do? <laughs> what is it for? How do we feel about it? How do I feel about it? And I went through this process with the assistance of my father, who has a totally different perspective on the Icelandic landscape than I do. I'm a folklorist, so I'm always looking for rocks that are the shape of trolls and, and thinking about the stories that are related to those, or like the island that Grettir lived on in Grettisaga an outlaw, and the spell that was cast on the log that he chopped. Anyway, I'm really interested in the mythological heritage of Iceland and the, how the landscape is formed in our stories about it. It's so obvious to me the ways that the descriptions in Norse mythology came about, about the beginning of the world, right? Iceland, you can literally see in the landscape the frost and fire giants that were there at the beginning of the world in Norse mythology. So in the description of how the world began, and I'm totally blanking on the source for this at the moment, but irrelevant, there were ice and fire giants at the beginning of the world. Some of the first beings, along with a giant cow and Ymir, which is a giant whose limbs were torn apart to shape the landscape, were these frost and fire giants that were continuously battling. And I understand that the frost and fire giants very well could be understood to be volcanoes and glaciers, which is what Iceland is principally made of. And of course, many other places in the world have been made of those things as well. Much of the landscapes in Europe that we see now, even though they don't show it as much, were shaped by these huge scraping 
ice giants <laughs> that sheared landscapes clean and picked up huge boulders and hurled them across distances, these very alive, frozen creatures. And, of course, the lava that forms stone to begin with. So the perspective that my father brings is that he's a geologist. <laughs> and so he's also thinking about the landscape in this sense of deep time and asking about how it was made, always looking at the shape as a result of some kind of change, some kind of movement, how it came to be instead of just thinking of it as eternal. There was a moment when every piece of land, every piece of stone, which is what you can see mostly in Iceland, it's not so hidden, there was a moment when every piece of stone came into being or was shaped in the way that it is shaped now. Nothing is eternal. And there was something really comforting about gazing at these dozens of extremely large ice bodies. One of the questions that I asked my dad while we were driving, because I asked my dad a lot of questions about volcanic stone, one of the questions I asked him was, what makes a glacier a glacier as opposed to an ice field? Because he said something like, oh, that glacier has receded and now it's just an ice field. And I was like, wait a minute, what's the difference? Because they look the same to me. One of them is a cap of ice on top of a mountain, and another one is a cap of ice on top of a mountain that kind of is coming towards us. And he said, well, the difference is that a glacier moves. And I don't know if everybody knows this. I'm sure some of you are like raising your hands like, I knew that. I know that glaciers move, but I didn't know. I mean, I knew that glaciers moved, but I kind of assumed that ice caps moved and everything moves all the time. Their definition is given to them in the fact that they flow. Glaciers are not still. And this is something that I think European scientists, quote unquote, discovered in maybe the 19th or 18th century after having been told so by indigenous peoples, I'm quite certain, because there's a really wonderful book, if you're interested in this, that you can read called Do Glaciers Listen? by Julie Cruikshank, who is a anthropologist who's working with indigenous folks recording oral histories in the Mount St. Elias range, which is what it's called now, between Alaska, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories in northern Canada slash the United States. They have these incredible stories that she details in the book that describe the ways that glaciers are responsive to human behavior. It was a, quite a while ago I read this book, but one of the examples is that glaciers would be upset if you were to cook with oil near them, and I think maybe also if you make really loud noises. And of course, we know that if you make a really loud noise <laughs> near a glacier, it might, it might calve, which means one of its chunks might come off. I don't know the scientific conditions of like what makes a glacier move suddenly, but glaciers do move suddenly. So watch out for that. Wouldn't go climbing on any glaciers without a lot of careful preparation ahead of time. I feel like I'm off topic a little bit here, but I've been looking at this Icelandic landscape, which has these fire giants, the volcanoes that you can see the lava still frozen from when that came out of the volcano on the ground in Iceland. If you haven't been here, you've probably seen photos of lava beds covered in green, green moss and small grasses. The 
soil tends to be quite thin in most areas here, and that's partly because there are almost no trees. And the trees that are growing are quite small compared to the ones that you would see elsewhere in the world because of the intense windy conditions here, as well as the thinness of the soil, and also just that they haven't been planted. After all of the forests were cut down shortly after, in the couple of hundred years after settlement of Iceland. But what's really cool about this landscape that is mostly lava and with very little trees and with glaciers abundant is that it really evokes for me this sense of it looks like Iceland has been sheared off and started over, basically. Like if you could take a landscape and just wipe the slate clean, that's what Iceland looks like. And I've thought about this for many years. I've been trying to understand, like, why do I feel this, like, fantastical wonder when I look at the Icelandic landscape, like, with these crazy, jutting, spiky rocks into the sky, and then these smooth, smooth valleys going into this flat, flat ocean, and the emerald green that just, like, shines out at you. What is surreal about this landscape? What does provoke wonder? Why do we think of J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings? Well, because he felt that wonder as well. And my sense the value that I'm beginning to take from this wonder, my evolving understanding of the wonder at the Icelandic landscape that we all feel when we look at it, is the fact that it evokes this sense of deep time. We can stand on the ground here and we can look back thousands and thousands of years to the moment in European or North American, etc., etc., history when the Ice Age had just ended and when humans were just arriving in that place. It's moss, it's grasses, it's small, you know, vulnerable little birch trees, because birch trees were the first forests to arrive after the Ice Age in Europe. It's an opportunity for us to be in a totally different time, to be utterly outside of how we've considered or just come to take for granted our moment in history. It reminds us that you could go somewhere and be in a totally different world. And when you do that, it gives you this sense, it gives me anyway, this sense of refreshment. It's like when you meet somebody and they tell you something about themselves or their life experience or how they've been thinking, and it like blows your mind. You know, it gives you a totally different view from which you can reevaluate everything. And I wanted to offer this experience of deep time, of gazing at glaciers and vast volcanic fields <laughs> and trolls and giants that are still visible in the landscape that they're forming, that no matter what is happening to you, around you, in the political world, in your personal experience, whatever spaces you are in between that are making you uncomfortable, whatever deaths, massive losses you are mourning at the moment, this sense of freshness, of new beginning, of wonder is always available to you. And you do have to go out and seek it out. And you might find it in going for a walk in the forest, even if you only have one tree in your neighborhood to visit that tree and think about 
holy shit, what a miracle that this tree has made it out of the soil, that the soil is here at all, that its roots are so deep in the earth and it has this mitochondrial system where it's communicating with every other tree that's lived there in the last hundreds of years, even if they're not there anymore. What a wonder that this place exists. What can it tell me? What assumption about the world can it disrupt for me right now? Where am I assuming I am in the process of time? What other times, what other realities might actually exist, even if you're just imagining them? Another opportunity for this might be meeting people. I know that sounds simple, right? But we have been in this pandemic state for a couple of years now, and I know personally that I've been really slow to get back my sense of confidence around meeting new people. I can podcast all day long, right? I can make social media posts, and it's not the same thing as walking up to someone you admire and introducing yourself. So that's something else that happened during this past couple of weeks, is that I revisited this folk music festival that I've attended before in northern Iceland in a place called Siglifjörður. This is another story that I want to share just as a frame for how we can manage these moments of uncertainty that we are all certainly inside right now. So I attended the Siglifjörður Folk Music Festival for the third time. This time I got to bring my partner and my father along to this place that's had a big impact on me. I used to work at the Folk Music Center there, which is like a museum for Icelandic folk song. And at this festival, it was my first opportunity since the pandemic to attend a folk festival and to encounter other people working in folklore and traditional musicians who had learned from tradition bearers and who were willing to teach other people what they had learned. And there were several opportunities for me at that festival to get out of my comfort zone and start connecting with people you know, bravely again in real time, and especially to practice my pagan monastery project elevator pitch. That's a, you know, a brief description of what you're doing in under 30 seconds that someone can understand. And that is always a challenge for me. And and I'm always looking for better ways to communicate what we're doing here as it is developing. But it was always educational for me. Every time that I got brave, and spoke to someone I didn't know, or went to an event to learn something, because I noticed that I had a reflex to stay in bed or not take a chance and show up at something that would expect me to learn. I had this sort of newly developed shyness that I'm working with, and it was just so rewarding every time that I stepped out and did a thing with other humans in person. One of those was a Greek dance workshop that I took. And to my surprise, in the middle of our dance workshop, we were taught Pyrrhic dancing steps, some Pyrrhic dancing steps. And that is a tradition that our teacher explained to us came from Greek myth in the moment where Zeus's father Kronos was about to eat him along with his other sons. And the people on Crete were instructed to dance around him in this particular style to create a protective spell. And she was describing how our dance in circles creates this this field of energy, like in a very basic sense. She wasn't getting woo-woo about it or anything, but 
when we dance together, we become one. And there's something about that you cannot imitate online or in your imagination. When you come into contact with other people, a new thing comes into being. And I just want to emphasize the reality of that. I want to encourage you to go out and have whatever fresh, scary experience that you need to have to create this energy field, to create this new being, to protect this child. You know what I mean? It's a very touching myth to think about that people would form together to protect this child god who would then serve the community as well in return. But what really struck me about this moment was that I went to a Cretan dance workshop, assuming I was just going to get Cretan dance, and I also got an education in Greek pagan history at the same time, and I learned a pagan dance, which for me is just always so encouraging when I stumble upon paganism and I don't know it's coming. So if you're interested in Pyrrhic dance, P-Y-R-R-H-I-C, you can look it up and see if you find something similar, because I was totally floored by that discovery. So what I'm saying here generally is that I have really benefited recently from believing in the power of being in the midst of uncertainty and in that moment also putting myself in the path of possibility. I've really benefited from taking small steps in the direction of wonder and curiosity and showing up in person for things, being brave <laughs> and reaching out. And I know that not everybody can fly to Europe to go to a folk music festival, and it is absolutely not required. But if you can do something to find another person near you to have a conversation about something that you love, I promise you, you will be surprised in some way by what you receive out of that exchange, by how your perspective is broadened, and specifically by being in person. I know that that's not easy to do, but that is partly what we're doing here, is understanding, hoping to understand, learning more about how our increased ability to communicate and our increased mobility in the world in some ways, and also often forced migration, the increased level and speed of movement and change, how that intersects with embodied experiences, with reverence for the land and how it can do that in productive ways. So I have lots of conversations with people about how we, as human beings, in order to begin living sustainably, we need to return to the village, right? We need to learn how to live in micro-communities and live with the land, not just off or on it, <laughs> or leaping off of it towards space. But we need to do that in ways that are not forced, that are not dominating, that are not necessarily imperiled. We're not doing that because we are reacting to something. We want to do that in an empowered way because we know so much now about what's possible. So we can't go back to the village. We can't just return to the village. We need to go forward to the village, bringing all of the new knowledge and possibility that we've acquired in this amazing moment of technology along with us. We don't need to return to ignorance. We can return simply to presence with each other in any way that that's possible. 
those are some conversations I had at the festival as well. Wanted to share that with you before I go today. This sense of possibility that is innate in our increased opportunities right now, as well as the mourning that's come from losing that smaller sense of the world. We can still see the world on a micro scale. We haven't lost that ability. It's simply that we also have a larger picture available to us as well. At the same time, they don't have to be in competition. So to summarize, <laughs> I just wanted to, to share this stuff from my personal life and give you a sense of where things are at with the Pagan Monastery Project. They're happening. It's quiet right now, so don't expect heaps of updates in the next few weeks, but things are rolling along. I'm still here. You can always join the mailing list in the show notes or email me at paganmonastery at gmail.com. I welcome your specific invitations to collaborate or meet up in person. These are welcome. Sometimes I get emails saying people would like to collaborate, and sometimes they're a little vague. So if I don't answer really specifically, it's because I don't know how, but it's not <laughs> because I don't want to hear from you. I am also developing these ideas, and we're all here without all the answers yet. But I love hearing from you. And I just want to encourage you, if you're in a place of uncertainty, as I don't doubt you are, just give yourself a chance, some tangible moments on your actual schedule to connect with the wonder of that experience, to ask yourself where you can invite playfulness into that space and who you might invite to play with you. Is there a tree you'd like to climb? Is there a cave you might explore? Is there a stream you can step barefoot into? Is there a library you can visit and take out books on something you don't know about but pulls on your heartstrings a little bit and then lay in the grass and read those on these summer days if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and if you're in the Southern Hemisphere in your cozy house. I'll be in Europe in the second half of August, God's willing, flight's willing. And if you want to connect with me here, there, just let me know. I'll be at Midgard's Bloat Festival. I think you should come if you are in Norway or nearby and interested in connecting with other pagans and in seeing some incredible bands. You can also find me on Instagram as usual. I have a lot of posts there that you can check back on if you haven't ever seen my stuff. There's a whole lot of content that I have made in the last several years. You can message me there as well. But yes, I hope to hear from you soon. I'll be back here. Good luck on this wild and crazy road. I'm here with you. We're doing this. We've got it. Thank you so much for listening today. If this episode touched or inspired you, it would mean a great deal to me if you rated and positively reviewed it and you shared it on social media, email, or regular old snail mail. Your support is invaluable to this project. If you want to connect with me further, you can find me on Instagram at danica.voice or you can email the podcast and the Pagan Monastery project directly at paganmonastery at gmail.com. Thank you to Gadus Morqua Ensemble for the opening theme music to the Pagan Monastery podcast. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.